So I want to tell you a story about Milarepa, who, according to literature, was actually a real, real um, traveler on the path. And he was much known for the enormous austerities that he undertook on his path, living in the Himalayas in India, in a cave for many years, existing, eating only nettles. And there's a story that one day that Milarepa was out gathering firewood, and he returned to find his cave inhabited by a host of demons. And he began to try and find the ways to get persuade these demons to leave. So he chanted mantras, he made offerings, he prayed for protection, he did prostrations. And one by one, the demons disappeared until only the most fierce demon remained, refusing to move, refusing to be budged. And Milarepa, at this point, pretty exhausted, realized he'd pretty much employed every strategy he had at his disposal, and gave up. And he placed his head in the mouth of the demon. And according to the story, in this great act of surrender, guess what happened? (laughs) The demon turned into a rainbow. Now, many of Buddhist stories, of course, do have very happy endings, you know, and usually somebody ends up getting enlightened or liberated or whatever. But I would like to just think about rewriting this story with a different ending. Suppose the demon didn't go away. Moved in, set up house, brought in its extended family, its favorite furniture and pictures, And Milarepa was there with the demon. What then would happen? What then would happen? So really what I want to try to talk about tonight, the word is try, is this dialogue between mindfulness and wise effort. It's really a dialogue between the modes of being with what is, and the modes are not adding or subtracting anything often used as a definition of mindfulness. The dialogue between that mode and the mode of engaging with wise effort with what is in order to affect change in order to effect change. Now, it's interesting to me that, you know, something that sometimes I have some concerns about in, in some Western impressions of mindfulness is that, you know, that it's almost kind of being taken up as a mantra, just stay with what is, stay with what is, be with what is, be with what is. 
And it turns mindfulness, in my sense, into this kind of one-dimensional mode of, of, of relating, mode of engaging. And certainly in Buddhist teaching, uh, sati, mindfulness, actually never comes to the party alone. Sati is always engaged with this much wider landscape of investigation, of effort, of calmness, of energy, of equanimity, of kindness. This is like the family of mindfulness. So... There's going to be a little bit of a repetition in what I want to talk about tonight from Jenny's talk last night because in many ways this dialogue really begins in the same place with with the awareness of suffering and the possibility of psychological and emotional dukkha or distress or suffering coming to an end. Now that is actually the, 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 the heart of this path. It is not just an acknowledgement of what is, it is an acknowledgement of what can be. And so this is why we call it a path, because it has a beginning in that very clear acknowledgement of the way things actually are. And then through exploration, through investigation, through cultivation, the movement towards what we could define as a goal. I know many Westerners have something of an allergy to the word goals because it has historical associations with striving and achieving and becoming and suffering, actually. But, of course, goals never created the suffering. It was the striving and the achieving and the becoming. But certainly we do not do this practice in order to stay the same. We don't do this practice in order simply to be more intimately acquainted with our aching knees and chaotic minds. We are in the business of effecting change. We're in the business of effecting transformation. On the basis of seeing clearly where we begin. Where we begin. And where we begin is a very timeless story. It's the very timeless dilemmas of understanding how we get into these places of torment and struggle and these contracted places of self and other, beginning to understand that. The other part, I think, that is very um, optimistic uh, in this teaching and path, if we use that word, It is really actually saying that none of these places we end up in of anguish or torment or struggling are accidents. They're not mysteries. They're not randoms. They're not just particularly bad luck that we have. They are a process. There is a process involved in all constructions. And it is that process born of confusion that we are actually invited to understand. So we start in the same place of recognizing there is so much that we cannot control in this unpredictable life. 
that no matter how heroic our efforts are, very often life simply does not cooperate with our desires or ideas of how things should be. Now, we don't like this truth, and it's kind of one of the reasons why, you know, sometimes people look at Buddhist teaching and think, well, this is rather depressing. (laughs) You know, let's talk about suffering. They kind of forget this other piece about the ending of suffering. But this is what we are all asked to meet, but we don't like it. We don't like the word struggle, torment, or or suffering, or, or dukkha. And we don't like the reality, so we do our best to avoid it. And many of the ways that we endeavor to avoid it is through cultivating forgetfulness. In fact, life can be an exercise in forgetfulness. The many mechanisms we use to avoid what is actually going on, the many strategies we employ to avoid just looking at this moment right in the eye. And you know what? Much of our world is collaborating in our forgetfulness. You know, the endless provisions of the ways that we can surely distract ourselves. You know, the endless promises we read sometimes that are such exercises in absurdity that one cannot even imagine how someone could be so shameless to put it in an ad that aging is optional. (laughs) And that we're going to cream our way out of old age. Isn't it interesting, this collaboration, you know, the busyness, the distractedness, the, you know, have more, become more, you know. If we just keep moving, perhaps, if we just keep ourselves in motion, perhaps we don't have to stop long enough to let our life actually touch us and to really see the way things are. Now, the dilemmas of this life, the very real questions that this life brings to us about, uh, about struggle and its causes and its end, they are, they are realities that we can endeavor to avoid, or they are realities that can be met with courage and wisdom and compassion. You know, the core insight of Siddhartha was that life is not a problem to be overcome, but that in a very real way, This life that we live as we live it is the very ground for our awakening, the very ground for freedom. It is the very classroom of liberation, not lying somewhere else. And we learn to undertake this journey of understanding, not with grimness or over-earnestness, but with gladness and with joy and with curiosity and with mindfulness, remembering what we are doing, what it is in the service of, is really realizing what the Buddha speaks of as a mind and heart that is luminous, that is radiant, that is without boundaries, that is fearless, that is unshakable in its poise, in its peace, in its happiness. That's where we're going. And if we remember that, we also remember that that goal, so to speak, cannot be separated from the path that we walk. It's not that we suffer now and are happy later. 
you know, it's not that we endeavor to overcome and strive now and at some future moment have this amazing breakthrough into peace. In many ways, the goals need to permeate the path, and the fruition of the path is actually the goal. And it's so important to bring these two together. The life of peace, the heart of peace, is really a path of cultivation, of cultivating calmness within chaos, of balance within the extremes that we can fall into, of cultivating kindness in the midst of harshness. Nagarjuna, one of the great teachers of the past, he asked the question, what do you do with a life that doesn't go away? And really the answer of this path is that we stop wanting it to go away. Then we are ready to be still. So the Buddha, Jenny talked about this last night, but the Buddha talked about, you know, all the kind of torment we go through, you know, as we try to find a way to get out of this life or not understanding how to meet it. You know, the the torment of despair and hopelessness, you know, the vocabulary of despair, you know, that I'm always going to be like this. This is who I am. This is going to last forever. You know, the torment of resistance, the torment of resistance, you know. When I practiced in in India in my early days of practice, I had the idea that deepening in my practice really um, relied upon shutting life out. So I went to pretty extreme measures to do that. You have to remember, I was living in the Himalayan foothills, which is pretty much as remote as you can get. You know, apart from being on the top of Everest. But it wasn't good enough for me. You know, I had this nice little, you know, well, nice, a pretty ramshackle shack to live in. But it was pretty secluded. But, oh, did it bother me that sometimes the local herdsmen walked by, you know, with their cows and their herds. And, oh, you know, that shouldn't be happening. So I moved farther up the mountain. You know, I, I'm sort of, I'm out of here. You know, there's going to be a better place. So I moved further up the mountain. Oh, dear, you know, here there was something else. You know, there were all those birds. You know, they were really bugging me. They were really intruding on my practice. So I moved further up the mountain until, you know, I was as far up that mountain as you could go and find a shack. I put blankets on the windows. You know, there was no light getting in here disturbing my practice. You know, so there I endeavored to practice, you know, and guess what? High up in the Himalayas, there lives troops of long-haired, long-silver-haired monkeys. And I had a tin roof. And they would come and jump on the roof of my shack, up and down, up and down. And then one day I found myself standing outside my shack, shouting at these monkeys. Now, you cannot probably imagine a more absurd picture than this, you know, that somehow the monkeys were going to obey my desires for, you know, this quietude that my practice depended on. It was actually quite a moment of awakening for me that this actually (laughs) really wasn't going to work, you know, and something needed to change inwardly. 
So it really is the way the Buddha said that suffering kind of holds dominion over our heart as long as we are intimidated by it. And then when we do find the courage to look at what is actually going on, struggle and torment has really become something to be understood. And this is where the Buddha talked about the path of investigation, of turning towards, of understanding what is actually happening. And he said that investigation is the most important factor of awakening and that it is through investigation that we can begin to discover for ourselves just these small tastes of freedom. Small tastes of freedom. What the Buddha is really encouraging in this investigation is not just conceptual investigation, it's experiential investigation. In fact, you could say that all of meditative practice undertaken well is experiential investigation because we're always a little bit looking beyond the boundaries of what we know and are familiar with. You know, if that little extra moment that you sit with pain rather than running from the hall, that's experiential investigation. You know, that little moment when you see judgmental thinking arising and it occurs to you that you might not need to jump into that parade. You might cultivate some meta. This is experiential investigation. The moment that you see fantasies arising and think, hmm, that might be something better to do with my attention. You know, you're actually going beyond the boundaries of what is familiar, and that is experiential investigation. Investigation is really understanding the psychology of the path of transformation. Understanding how to be with, amidst, amidst the painful, amidst the difficult, the outer events that are difficult, but also understanding the process of transformation within the most intractable, embedded, stubborn and repetitive patterns of mind that live in our hearts. There is a a wonderful quote I love where, a teacher is asked, you know, a very much loved teacher is asked, what is the secret of your happiness? And he answers, it is a complete, unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable. The complete, unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable. In my mind, the unavoidable is basically life. The complete, unrestricted cooperation. First, what we understand is that, of course, there is difficulty and pain and affliction in life that is certainly unavoidable. And there is that which is optional. And both of these ask for our cooperation. You know, it's so important to recognize, and particularly as mindfulness teacher, it's so important to recognize this, that, you know, we can be the most mindful people in the world, the most awake and present and mindful people in the world, and you know what? We can still get sick. And we can still have things that break down. And we still may not have the perfect life. And we will still have things that go wrong. I find this so important because it can come, there can be a certain neurosis that comes with, you know, teaching mindfulness. 
<laughs> and says, you know, if I was really doing it right, I wouldn't have this. <laughs> you know, I, I wouldn't have this going on in my life. There is adversity and brokenness with life in, within life that doesn't always go away. And within that which doesn't go away, the demons that go, don't go away, we are ask of ourselves what kind of inner transformation is invited. Invite, what would be invited for us to be with something that may be with us for the rest of our lives? This may be the reality in your life. You may live with chronic pain or illness. You certainly will meet people who are living with affliction and adversity that is not going to go away. Mindfulness is certainly not some kind of magic wand that makes pain disappear. Yet, compassion and acceptance, the cultivation of fearlessness and kindness makes us redefine what healing is. Makes us redefine what healing is. That it is not that something goes away, but that there can be a taste of freedom in that which is broken. I wanted to read you just uh, a small poem by Roshani. It says, There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole. I think we're all asked on this path to find a way of being in this life which is actually rooted in understanding what is true rather than ill will. You know, understanding the the impossibility and the torment of trying to grasp the ungraspable of, of trying to control the uncontrollable. Pain and adversity don't disappear simply because we don't like them. But there is a profound learning in discovering that we can find a way to be with the simple truths of each moment, no matter how hard they are, with balance and equanimity. I think with what we cultivate here in terms of calmness and mindfulness investigation, I think we can transform ourselves from being creatures of habit to people of wakefulness and, and balance. Now, some suffering is unavoidable. Some is optional. That doesn't make it hurt less. Very important to say that. It doesn't make it less painful just because it might be optional. We can see the tremendous pain that can run through many of our psychological and emotional habits of reactivity. There is so much painfulness in being gripped by patterns of self-judgment or striving or obsession or depression or anxiety. 
feelings of unworthiness, of, of rage, of, of craving. They are patterns and belief systems that can shadow our days and suffocate, really suffocate, our capacity for joy. Times these patterns and belief systems can feel so intractable and so embedded Their history can feel so long, it's almost as if they began before we were even born. And in some instances, this is actually true. We can have generational lineages of fear and aversion and harshness that have been so much part of our our lives, so much part of our, 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 the climate of our lives, that they've become almost normalized. They actually don't know anything outside of them. That's kind of how we think relationship is, how we think life is. In fact, these patterns can feel so intractable that they're woven into the very fabric of our being that we can feel the impossibility of change. And yet, this may not be so. The Dalai Lama once said that if you want to know what compassion is, look into the eyes of a mother or a father as they hold in their arms their weeping, ill child. In very real ways, you know, some of these ranges of suffering and torment that are optional really are asked to be held in exactly that same way just as we would hold a tormented body that might be in chronic pain or illness, how do we hold a heart, a mind that is tormented? Now, 2,600 years ago, you know, uh, uh, although you know, many, so many things have changed in the world, there's so much timelessness about human consciousness. You know, and it's so fascinating when you read the discourses and you, you, you read these stories of people coming to the Buddha raising exactly the same questions that get raised today in, you know, clinical settings and in retreats. You know, what are we going to do with that which feels so stuck? What are we going to do with this mind that seems to spin in these loops of repetition? And there is a group of discourses, a group of discourses where the Buddha speaks of, you know, really speaks to this sense of bewilderment and helplessness that can arise when we really feel that our mind or our heart is actually not our friend, not a refuge. And it is in this group of discourses that the Buddha begins to approach this dialogue between wise mindfulness, being with what is, Staying with what is, without any agenda, and the cultivation of qualities in the same moment. Now what happens in these discourses? The Buddha is talking about a number of pathways that can be cultivated that are essentially applications of insight that are in the service of changing what is. It's kind of interesting. Now, underneath these pathways that the Buddha talks about that are really in the service of changing what is, it's very important to remember that 
they live on a foundation of mindfulness, of kindness, but they also have a real dedication to liberating the mind from habits and patterns of reactivity that cause only pain and seem the most intractable. Now, I think this is a dialogue which is continuing to be explored not only in meditative uh, communities, but also in therapeutic communities. When is it right, when is it wise to be simply there, stay with what is, and when it is right to actually look for a transformation of what is? There is a certain transformation, I would say, that comes from being able to stay present with what is without judgment or agenda. There is a transformation that happens there. There's a transformation that happens inwardly as we move out of aversion and fear, a tremendous liberation that can happen there. But there's also the reality that the Buddha speaks about uprooting, uprooting the most deeply embedded causes of suffering the most deeply embedded psychological and emotional patterns that torment us so that they do not re-arise. So I think it's good to hold both of those. Now this is a dialogue. I think this dialogue between being with what is and making the effort to affect change, I think it's a dialogue that has implications far beyond our own mind and body. When is it right to, to just accept and be with something like injustice or difficulty or, or conflict in our families, our communities and our relationships. When is it right just to be with that? And when do we actually really need to dedicate ourselves to changing something? I mean, this is so interesting, you know. I mean, if, if you walk down the road outside of here and, and you saw, for example, someone kicking a dog, well, you know, we could be with that. But the dog's not really going to appreciate us saying, you know, just seeing, just seeing. You know, if you get on a bus and you witness a situation of, say, racial abuse or, you know, some other kind of abuse, you know, what is the rub here between staying with that, being mindful of it, being present with it, cultivating as much kindness and compassion, and this other piece of actually saying no? You know, like this is not acceptable. And there's absolutely, I think, a realization both outwardly and inwardly, perhaps, I would like to suggest, that to know how to be fully accepting does not mean that everything is acceptable. There is suffering and torment that perhaps cannot be changed. And there is much that can be. And I think there is something more than mindfulness involved in that. This is not an easy question to ask about when to affect change, when to be with. I don't think this is a question that has easy answers. I think it is an investigation, but I think what we do see that acceptance without genuine insight can easily become passivity. 
and effort without genuine insight can easily become yet another form of trying to manipulate the moment to serve the way that we want it to be. So I'm not going to pretend I have the answer to this, by the way. (laughs) Because this is so complex and such an ongoing investigation. Now, the responses, the pathways the Buddha talked about here, and I would even call them interventions, is what the Buddha spoke about. Because in, the, in this, this particular, this one discourse, you know, people are going to the Buddha and they just keep getting stuck in the same place. And so he keeps offering this advice. And then every time it's, it, you know, he starts to offer a new piece of advice, he says, and if it still arises... You know, and then goes on with this particular suggestion, and then it goes on, and if it still arises, you know, and so, you know, there was an acknowledgement, you know, that things can be pretty stuck. Things can feel pretty intractable. So often that they've kind of become self-view, that I'm, you know, I'm unworthy, I'm anxious, I'm a type. I'm a type. Now, what is, I think, uh, you know, because Buddhist teaching and psychology really does think in terms of process. It's always process-based. So, you know, what the Buddha suggests is what we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. What we dwell upon becomes the inclination of our mind. If we repeat the particular dwellings time and time again, that shape of mind hardens into character and becomes the view of who we are. If we dwell sufficient number of times in aversion or judgment or anxiety, it becomes the shape of our mind, and it becomes our self-view. Now, if you think of an analogy for this, it's like if you went outside to do your walking meditation, and every time you did your walking meditation, you did it in exactly the same pathway of grass. Actually, this really happens here. You know, you walk up and down, you walk up and down, you know, and, you know, guess what? After a few days, you've got a track, don't you? You know, you keep doing that another week or two, you start to get a little ditch, you know, and you keep going, and pretty soon, you know, you've got a rut, and you can be so far down the bottom of that rut, it's like everything has disappeared. You don't even see the sky anymore. You know, that rut has become my reality. Pretty similar stuff goes on, actually, emotionally and psychologically. And sometimes in doing that, it occurs to us it might be useful to choose another path. And sometimes it doesn't. You go around the grounds, a guy has you, see these paths everywhere. You know, little trenches. <laughs> so this group of, of discourses is talking about changing the shape of mind through a number of mindful applications. Why? Not because these ruts or these grooves are bad or wrong, but because they are suffering and they lead to further suffering. So the first of these applications, or if I would even call them interventions, is reflection. Take a moment for reflection. Look at some of the loops we might keep spinning. Look at some of the self-views we might keep spinning. Look at some of the places where we keep getting caught in the same closed feedback loop over and over again. Just look at it. Look at rage. Look at obsession. 
Look at thoughts of judgment or anxiety in the eye. Let go of the story about them. Let go of their origins. Just look at them and ask ourselves, reflect simply. Where do these lead? Where do these lead? Where do they go? What is the outcome? Does staying within these loops actually lead to happiness and peace, or do they only lead to further sorrow and affliction? Does this dwelling ever lead? Does it ever have a different outcome? Does it ever lead to happiness? Does it ever lead to well-being and freedom? Or does it obstruct freedom and well-being in ourselves and others? Now, this is not just an abstract reflection. I might say this is a practice. You know, because as I say, you know, the more you sit here, the more you become familiar with how your mind works, doesn't it? So it's, you know, rather, maybe not sometimes, but we do, you know. And it, 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 we just get to know it, don't we? And, and so it's not an abstract reflection. It's really an application of insight. This is very important to remember. So if you're walking up and down your walking path, you know, and entertaining some very familiar story of self-judgment or anxiety or, you know, rehearsing the future not only of this life but our next ten lifetimes, you know, you might just stop for a moment and say, where does this lead? What is its outcome? Does it lead to happiness, freedom? Or are we digging the rat a little bit deeper? What is the impact of this song of judgment, anxiety, obsession. To know that to continue to entertain this is like volunteering for suffering. A friend of mine calls this conscious incompetence. We know what's going on and we're still doing it. And the whole point of this path, of course, is, as he describes it, to move to conscious competence. We actually know what's going on and we actually don't keep doing it. To know it's like volunteering for suffering and we can, in that moment, volunteer for peace and freedom in the light of that understanding. There is a place in this path for for what I call mature dissatisfaction. You know, there is something immature dissatisfaction which is just about, I hate this, I want it to go away, you know, get rid of it. But there is a mature dissatisfaction when we truly see some of the cycles of our own heart and mind that repeat suffering over and over again and we actually be able to say to ourselves, really, enough. Just enough. Then how do we translate that? With kindness and with resolve. Isn't that interesting word? The Buddha uses the word resolve. We resolve, which is kind of like a big intention. It's an intention with muscle. (laughs) We resolve not to go there. We resolve not to entertain this. It's interesting that. You know, because we can so get a little bit too hung up with the gentleness of mindfulness. There is a little muscle involved here in this path. You know, and sometimes that resolve, enough. Not push it away, not bad, not wrong, but enough. I don't need to do this anymore. I don't need to entertain this. It's not self-perpetuating these patterns, by the way. They rest upon actually being fed, as I talked about the other night. So perhaps we are learning the practice of letting go. Um, 
it, learning to apply that resolve to step out, to step out, to step out. Not once, a hundred times, a thousand times, we step out, we apply that resolve. It is enough. We don't want to volunteer for suffering anymore. We want to volunteer for freedom. And those, what we are really doing in that is cultivating the non-dwelling mind. To cultivate the non-dwelling mind. It's hard practice, this. But you know what? It's so much harder to just keep living in the ruts. You know, and that's almost the, the, the dynamic that we need to entertain. The second reflection the Buddha talks about is the encouragement to remember what is too important to forget. When we are in the grip of obsession, in the grip of judgment, in the grip of anxiety or wanting, we actually have forgotten so much. We've forgotten so much about the possibilities of calmness, of simplicity, of peace, of kindness. And these qualities, again, are not accidents. You know, sometimes sati, mindfulness, is translated as remembering or keeping in mind, keeping consciously in mind. And it's part of a little bit of what we talked about this morning. We need to remind ourselves over and over again what our hearts to what are our hearts to committed to. And in those moments, in the grip of unrest or unease, which you need to ask yourself, where is the calmness in this moment? Where is the peace in this moment? Where is the spaciousness in this moment? We actually look for it. Sometimes in this unpredictable life, the only choice we have is what we pay attention to. The third of the applications that the Buddha talks about, and these two kind of flow into each other, it's one of the aspects of wise effort. To bring into being what is absent. To consciously bring into being what is absent. If the mind feels contracted, how do I cultivate spaciousness? How do I bring this into being? If the mind feels agitated, you know, or, or restless, how do I bring calmness into being? It's to consciously cultivate what is missing or absent. Sometimes if it means paying attention to something that's neutral. Sometimes just paying attention to something that's neutral. Personally, I think there's a great value in practicing in the neutral zone because this is where we're not event-making. It's where we're not event-making. So then this question of when to stay with the difficult, when to take our attention away, is really looking at the whole teaching of wise effort. Part one of the wise effort is to consciously cultivate the wholesome and the liberating that is not present. One of the wise effort is to consciously deepen and sustain the wholesome and the liberating that is present. And you know what? One of the wise efforts I would put under the umbrella of wise avoidance. 
when to turn our attention away. I mean, there is always a wisdom in, in staying with what is. If we can stay with what is, with mindfulness, with kindness, with intentionality. But if those qualities start to disappear, then our staying with what is turns into not mindfulness but endurance. But we're still shouting at ourselves, stay with what is. But actually we're just enduring. Now, if we are ever in danger of being overwhelmed by what is present... There is, I think, no wisdom in staying with what is. Because if we are overwhelmed, you know, by a tsunami of obsession or, or aversion or self-judgment, you know, what is the outcome of that? All it ever does is undermine confidence. You know, we come out, our hearts are battered, our minds are battered, we're exhausted, and then we dread the reappearance of that aversion and we dread the reappearance of that anxiety because it batters us so strongly. There are times when we actually, I personally think we learn nothing by, stay, by being overwhelmed. And sometimes in those moments of taking our attention away, might be to metta, might be to the breath, it might be somewhere else, Skillful, intentional, mindful. We are actually saying to this tsunami of, of, of self-judgment, whatever the pattern is, not this, not now. Not this, not now. We're not saying not this, not ever. We're saying not this, not now. Now sometimes a little too, a little meditative neurosis can arise here, feeling that you know if we take our attention away from the difficult, we will have missed our golden opportunity to understand this demon. You don't need to worry. It's waiting in the wings. <laughs> it will come back. You will have another chance, believe me, to look at self-judgment and aversion and craving. But with a mind that is balanced, that is steady, that has ground of calmness, it's knowing when to take away. The, the Buddha was very, very realistic in the, in the resent, uh, relentlessness and the persistence of some of these patterns in saying, you know, and if it still arises... Reflect on the danger in these patterns. Isn't that interesting? Reflect on the danger in these patterns. The harm that they may do to our hearts. Recognizing they require the fuel of thought. They require the fuel of clinging. And part of the pathways I mentioned the other day is to learn to stop feeding the fire. No, as the Buddha put it, I know of no one single thing that can do so much harm as an untrained mind. And that once understood, I know of no one single thing that can be of as much benefit as a well-trained mind. So then what does they say to do this if it still arises? You know, maybe we haven't cultivated the foundations for insight. You really see, don't you, how vulnerable the mind is when it's inattentive, when it's distracted, or when, or when the mind is simply exhausted, how vulnerable the mind is to patterns, they just kind of move right in because the conditions are there for those patterns to have power. So what the Buddha suggested is rather than, you know, um, 
you know, struggling with this, we, we sometimes need to honestly look if we're cultivating the inner conditions that allow us to actually meet that which is challenging and difficult. What are those conditions? Well, you know, sometimes we need to deepen our attention levels. We need to deepen some levels of concentration. We need to deepen some levels of equanimity. We actually need to deepen in the practice. Again, it's almost strengthening the mind um, because the vulnerable mind, the vulnerable mind, it's like it, it can't taste freedom. This is not about overcoming or succumbing, not about being in control or being out of control. It's about finding a middle path. And when the Buddha was talking about a well-trained mind, he's got this remarkable statement. He says, you know, if you've got a well-trained mind, you, you think the thoughts you wish to think when you, went to th- when you want to think them and you don't think the thoughts you don't want to think. <laughs> That's simple. That's quite a remark, that's quite a high bar, I would say. It's quite a high bar. But it's remembering that this teaching is about, it's not about teaching us not to think. I haven't got a single interest in teaching people not to think. You know. But it's about knowing how to think well and creatively and reflectively and, and intentionally. You know, it's teaching about not, not about teaching people not to feel, to have a sort of emotional desert. But it is teaching people how to have an emotional wholeheartedness to know the landscape of their hearts, to know the emotions that really, uh, the most lovely of emotions, of empathy and compassion and gladness and joy and peace, and to know how to soften the emotions that afflict us. Okay, but things are still arising. And the discourse goes on, and if it's still arising, we realize the long history. And you know, this is, this is an interesting piece. There can be a meditative neurosis that tells us we need to stay with this judgmental, obsessive, aversive past pattern because we haven't understood it yet. Sometimes that might be true. But quite frankly, sometimes we've been around that loop so many times. We have squeezed every drop of insight out of it. There is nothing more to learn. You know, we know the history of the story. We know where it came from. You know, we know how it's affected us. We know what it does to us. The well is dry. There is no more insight to be squeezed. This is when we actually really need to be able to see just a thought as a thought and a feeling as a feeling. You know, it's a little bit like the story of Sisyphus, you know, who's sentenced by the gods, you know, for some misdemeanor, keep pushing the rock up the hill, you know, and every time he gets to the top of the hill, lo and behold, rolls back down again, he starts all over again pushing the rock up the hill. Well, we could change that story too and think maybe Sisyphus is in love with his rock. Could just leave it down the bottom. another option 
And sometimes I think that feeling of, oh, yeah, there's more in, you know, something I haven't understood here. I, I actually think we're, sometimes we can be a little bit in love with our rock. This teaching has a different perspective on healing, I think. I think the perspective in this teaching on healing is that we heal the past by healing the present. (coughs) That all of our difficult thoughts, our memories of pain, our stories of affliction, you know, our feelings of inadequacy or whatever that have very long histories, they all arise. Of course, the only place they can arise is in the present. It's the only place they can arise. By learning to approach those difficulties and some of these patterns with kindness, with compassion, with spaciousness, with ease, we are actually healing those patterns in the present. In many ways, when we heal the present, we heal all of the past. We're not having to research always the history. It's sometimes very good to know the history, by the way. But actually, once we have the clear comprehension that understands how something has come into being, then we have the challenge of healing that history in this present, which is the only place it can be healed. That which is so intractable runs around this center of self-view, of I am. This is who I am. But that center of self-view of this is who I am is actually being shaped and formed by the patterning of the moment. The patterns, emotional, psychological patterns, are actually shaping or patterning the view of I, the view of self. Now, that shaping and patterning of the moment does not need only to come from the difficult and the painful. What we are really learning to do in this practice is to shape and pattern this moment with investigation, with kindness, with compassion, with understanding, with insight, with spaciousness, and look at how the self-view becomes much quieter in that. Have you noticed that? That in, when the difficult is there, how the, 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 the song of the selfing is so much louder? Have you noticed when there is really kind of very skillful and uh, lovely states of mind, ways of being, of calmness, of spaciousness, have you noticed how the song of selfing becomes so much quieter? It's just true in all of our lives, isn't it? If you think about the times actually when, you know, you very intuitively feel a sense of generosity or, or empathy or kindness, do you notice how the, the, the song of selfing is very quiet in that? It's unhesitating. But have you noticed in some of the more difficult emotions of ill will and hostility and fear, have you noticed how the song of self, the, the, the volume just gets turned up? <coughs> So what we do here is, is not, we're not certainly not looking for no self, by the way, and we may hopefully get into this more. We're undoing self-view, the self-view that is being patterned by that which has historical difficulty 
and becomes a view of who I am. So think of how much this practice is a path of cultivation. Cultiv- you know, we're not hammering at hostility, we're cultivating kindness. You know, we're not trying to sedate agitation, we're cultivating calmness. You know, we're not trying to, to push anything away, we're cultivating being with. So it is almost as if the cultivation of that which is so liberating, healing and freeing, this is what actually allows the dissolving of that which arises yet again and yet again and yet again. But so too can arise yet again, yet again and yet again. The calmness, the kindness, the spaciousness, the equanimity. So if we have just a moment quietly together and then we'll have a walking period. So if if we could please come back at um, half an hour, do you think? If we could come back for ten two, so if someone could ring the bell at quarter two. Is anybody willing? Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/slash. Donate.